Hi, I'm Louise. And I'm John. And you're listening to the DCIF podcast, Changing World, New Opportunities, an investment podcast designed for members of the DC community. We'll be chatting with asset managers who are all passionate about DC and getting investment right for the members. Investments in DC have changed a lot, so we'll be helping you, the listener, to stay up to date with the latest, from real estate to alternatives, the challenges of trusteeship through to addressing climate change. This first series will focus on the changing world we find ourselves in and the exciting investment opportunities for DC plans. Keep up to date with our work at dcif.co.uk, where you can sign up to receive our research and get invitations to our launches. You can also follow us on Twitter at DCIF underscore UK and on LinkedIn, where we are the Defined Contribution Investment Forum. Fantastic. Let's get on with the show. Morning, Louise. How are you today? Morning. I am very well, thank you. Looking forward to this podcast. Yeah. And as we've looked at this range of podcasts, you know, what we want to do is give the listeners an opportunity to hear from you know our membership in terms of some of the key areas they're focusing on and so I think the next session with Katie is going to be really interesting when she starts talking about thematic funds and why they might be important for DC members. Yeah I have to be honest I didn't know that much about thematic funds but I think it'll be really interesting to learn more about how they can be used in a DC context which yeah isn't something I heard that much about today really. No, and it's definitely an area that's in its infancy and we're starting to see more funds creep onto pension platforms more generally so members can use them as part of self-select. So we're definitely seeing an increase in, in interest and I don't think it'll be too long before we start to see thematic funds creep into DC defaults. But it'll be interesting to hear Katie's take on things and like you, I'm really excited to hear what Katie's going to say over the next wee while. Perfect. Okay, well, let's go over to Katie. Well, hi, Katie, and a very warm welcome to the DCIF podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's so nice to talk to you. And we're going to learn about sustainable thematic funds today, which is very exciting. I wondered if you could maybe just start by telling us a bit about you and your role at JP Morgan. Sure. Yeah, happy to. I'm an investment specialist at JP Morgan Asset Management, which means I sit within our portfolio management team, working with portfolio managers, research analysts, and so on. But my role is a bit more focused on client engagement. So how do you take some of the themes and portfolios that our PMs are working on and then communicate that message out to our end clients? And the main area of focus that I have is really on thematic investing, particularly in the area of sustainable thematic investing. So how can we talk to our clients about the biggest sustainable themes and trends that are shaping the world and how we build portfolios to tap into those? What's your definition of thematic? Sorry Um, to throw that at you. Yeah, yeah. I, I think... You know, in some ways, thematic is is newer in the industry. It is something that has been growing relatively rapidly over the past two, five, ten years. But in other ways, it's also something that active portfolio managers have kind of been tapping into forever. And we really think about thematic investing as building portfolios of securities. We're primarily focused in the equity space, but it, but it can be elsewhere, that are focused on a specific theme. So that theme can be addressing climate change. It can be addressing more social elements. It can be technology. And it's almost an evolution of how we've typically thought about building portfolios. We're comfortable thinking about portfolios along sector lines or maybe along factor lines. And thematic investing is almost just a different lens on that. That makes sense. And then you bring in sustainable as well. So how does, how does that kind of sit within sustainable thematic? How do the two kind of intersect? I think there's a a tremendous amount of overlap between the two because when we think about what are the biggest themes and trends and innovations going on in the world, a lot of them are linked to sustainability. 
A lot of them are also linked to technology. So a lot of the themes we've seen historically have been technology-oriented themes, maybe robotics, AI, cybersecurity. But even more so, we're starting to see more in the areas of sustainability. What are the outcomes that we want our clients' assets to be investing along? And actually, what are the biggest drivers of change around the planet? A lot of them happen to be related to, to sustainable topics. And as part of your role, you mentioned that you take themes out to clients. I was wondering, to what extent are clients asking JP Morgan what they have in the space versus you actively taking things to clients? Is it fairly equal or do you find it's actually clients who are doing most of the, the, the asking of these sorts of things? I think it's a bit of a mix. And when we started building out our range of thematic strategies, a lot of it did tend to be very client-driven. And if you think about clients like DC schemes, like private wealth, wealth management advisors, a lot of them are seeing interest from their end clients because end clients are seeing themes shaping their own lives. They care about the climate. They care about you know, moving their entire way of doing business to online. And then they want their investments to align with that. So the demand is maybe, in a way, coming from the end user of these products. And then it's coming through, through different channels to us. But also, we're coming up with ideas that we, we want to take out to clients as well. Have there been any themes that have come from the bottom up from the clients that have actually surprised you? Because I guess when you're sitting there thinking about what themes might be interesting, there's some fairly standard ones, but are there many client requests that are just so far out there that hadn't even kind of crossed your mind to think about constructing a portfolio along those lines? I don't think that there are any that are like completely far out there, but there are quite a number that are maybe a bit short-termist. Think about throughout the COVID pandemic, we actually saw a lot of interest in things that were very related to, okay, we're all moving to work from home, we're all living our lives online. Actually, that was a shift that was already starting to take place anyway, and actually COVID and the pandemic kind of highlighted that. But we also saw other things related to, oh, now everyone's having pets, so should we maybe focus a bit more on that? Or some tend to be quite niche, maybe specifically focused on, I don't know, ocean health or specifically focused on one specific dimension that maybe isn't the right way to go, but sometimes actually is very interesting to, to tap into. So you guys aren't launching a pet fund or anything like that soon? No? Not in the near term, but, no, okay. you know, actually, maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe it's one to look into. <laughs> And once you um, think about these themes, you know, how do you define a theme? You know, we explored with someone from Aberdeen earlier on in the series about SDGs, and that might be a fairly simplistic way of thinking about themes. But you know, when you guys are considering themes, is that the starting point? Or you know, how else do you come up with themes when thinking about constructing portfolios? There are a few different dimensions that we think about. SDGs are one important element, particularly when we're thinking about sustainable themes. So the United Nations has developed this set of sustainable development goals called SDGs. There are 17 of them. And these were built by the UN really for policymakers. What are the big things that we need to move towards as a planet in order to provide for a more sustainable world? In reality, not every single one of them is investable. They're built for policymakers, so that's the angle that, that they fit. But actually, a lot of that can feed into how you build sustainable thematic portfolios as well. We also have a dedicated sustainable investing team that's doing research on this, and they've developed their own kind of framework around the sustainable and inclusive economy. What are the things from both an environmental and social perspective that we need to move towards that are actually investable, and how can we build portfolios around that? And then we combine that with 
what actually makes sense from an investability perspective. We have a team of more than 90 research analysts doing fundamental research and meeting with companies day in and day out. How can we use the insights that they're bringing, the insights from our fundamental research and portfolio management teams to really say, okay, we've got this sustainable idea. What's actually practical? How can we actually build portfolios that have an impact that make sense that also have a positive or good investment outcome for our clients as well. So it's a bit of a, a mix of multiple different angles. And of the, the themes themselves, would you say that the majority tend to be somehow linked to sustainability or ESG, if you want to characterize it that, versus an AI fund or a tech fund or an innovation fund? How would you sort of characterize the split? Is it equal or is it biased towards one or the other? It's a bit of a mix, and it does vary by region as well. So when we look at the global market of thematic funds on the market, at the end of last year was just over about $800 billion of assets. About 55% of that was in Europe. So Europe's the biggest area where we've seen growth. And in Europe, those are primarily actively managed funds. The US is more passive-oriented, more ETF vehicles, and Asia actually has a pretty, pretty large thematic space as well. In Europe, sustainability does tend to be the dominant theme. We've got a lot of energy transition and climate change funds. We've got a lot of water funds. We've got health and health tech-oriented strategies. So that really is the the dominant area of focus. There is a a number of tech robotics-type strategies in there as well. In the U.S. and Asia, it is a bit less focused on sustainability so far, but we're actually starting to see that shift as well, and, and I think that will continue. Are there any emerging themes that are really exciting at the moment, without giving away the crown jewels, of course. (laughs) Sure. So when we think about building thematic portfolios, we tend to prefer to pick broad, dynamic themes to invest in and then have the ability as active managers to navigate within that and identify emerging themes and trends. So, for example, one of the strategies that we've spent a lot of time on is our, our Climate Change Solutions Fund. So that invests in companies that are innovating in areas like renewable energy, like energy efficiency of buildings, like sustainable transport, like sustainable food and water. And then within that, we have the ability to invest across the entire spectrum. Now, today, we're a bit more focused on established companies, robust revenue streams, robust balance sheets, partly given the market environment, but we're actually seeing a lot of innovation in the early stage as well. A couple of examples of that is hydrogen. Using hydrogen as an energy carrier could be incredibly transformational for how we think about addressing this climate change challenge. And similarly, carbon capture. These are both really new and innovative technologies. They're a bit early stage. They're not quite cost competitive yet. So we size them on the smaller end in our portfolio, but actually three, five, 10 years time, they could be hugely transformational. And so we're trying to you know, think about tapping into that and following that through time and it can become bigger proportions of the portfolio as those grow. When you have those names in a portfolio, I imagine you must be measuring against some form of benchmark. So do you exclude those early stage companies for the purposes of performance measurement, accepting the fact that in the early stages they might be you know, performing poorly because the revenue streams haven't come on board, etc. I'm curious as to how thematic funds can be measured against some form of benchmark, if indeed that's what you actually do. Well, benchmarking is a challenge. There are some themes where you can use a sector benchmark as sort of a proxy. I mean, a lot of the healthcare themes, you can think about a healthcare or biotech sector, even maybe renewable energy, there's a renewable energy sector. But once you move 
broader than that, it does get challenging. So the way that we and most providers in the space have gone about this is simply use a broad benchmark. We use the MSCI Acqui Index. You could use an MSCI World because that's the opportunity set. That's where we're looking to invest. It's a recognizable benchmark. It's where our clients would be allocating from. And actually, if you try to get cute or a bit more precise, you might actually lead clients to think that you're doing something different, like you're only focused on a specific benchmark and doing over and underweights. So we use a, a broad benchmark for comparison, but the active share of these funds is 98% or so. I mean, it's they look very different. Now, to the question on early stage companies, we, we do include them in performance. I mean, our clients are invested in them. There's a big reason why. There's a huge growth potential here. But we want to be mindful about when's the right time to be investing in them, which specific companies we want to allocate to. Maybe in a super growth-oriented environment, it makes sense to move there. Maybe right now, maybe not so much. And actually, I think from both a sustainable perspective and an investment perspective, we need to think through that. Because some of these pure play companies, I mentioned hydrogen, carbon capture, there's you know alternative proteins and things like that. Hugely transformational in the future, but they're making less of an impact now. So we want to be mindful of, of balancing that as we're building robust portfolios that are going to withstand the test of time and, and perform well through the cycle. How do you define a theme? I mean, is net zero a theme? Would climate change be a theme? Or are those more like things that you consider more broadly when you're looking more thematically? Like, what's, what's a theme? <laughs> Tr- tricky one. <laughs> I, I do think net zero and climate change are themes, okay. but there are so many ways to go about tackling them. Yeah. Just using that as a case study, I think we think about that in kind of two different ways. So one way to think about net zero investing is to think somewhat internally. How are you investing in companies that are changing the way that they do business to get towards net zero? So maybe these companies are using more renewable energy. Maybe they're lowering their carbon footprints. Maybe they're really focused on reducing their waste or their water use. All of these things are looking at individual companies and how they're moving in the right direction. And usually you build a portfolio that's going to have a lower carbon footprint than a traditional broad market. That is a very important angle and one that we see a lot of clients interested in, reducing their own carbon footprint to get to net zero. The flip side of that is less about what companies are doing internally and more about what they're doing externally. What goods and services are they providing that are going to facilitate the transition to net zero? So it's more about, is a company providing electric vehicles or the batteries that are used within them or the charging stations to get there? Are they providing energy efficient forms of heating and ventilation and so on? And that portfolio is gonna look very different. It's not necessarily gonna have a lower carbon footprint itself, but it's incredibly integral to how we get to net zero. And so I think there are a couple of different ways to think about thematic investing and those play different roles in clients' portfolios as well. Some could be a bit more core, low tracking error, risk managed. Some could be a bit more high conviction, you know, 50 stock portfolio type type thing. So there are different avenues to go down, which I suppose doesn't make it easy for anyone, but, but also does mean that there's a lot of different options to, to tackle some of these challenges. And when you're thinking about, you've constructed a thematic fund conceptually, how do you actually determine the investable universe? So it might be a water fund, for example. When your analysts are sitting down, do they, is there a screen that they can do to say, right, if you're going down this theme, there's a universe of theoretically 200 companies globally. 
And therefore, it's up to your analyst to then say, right, of those 200, we want to construct a 50 stock portfolio, go and find the best 50. Is, is that the way it works or is that too yeah, simplistic? Pretty, pretty, pretty good summary. That's one of the biggest challenges with thematic investing. Like, how do you even find these companies? <laughs> because it's not like there's a sector out there that is capturing this theme. And a lot of times these themes cross multiple different sectors. They're around the globe. They're across the market cap spectrum. So it's very different from traditional investing where you do have, here's your benchmark over and underweight to achieve your results. So the way that we do it is we actually start by using the power of big data and artificial intelligence. So we've built within JP Morgan Asset Management a tool called the ThemeBot. And the ThemeBot will scan through tens of millions of data sources. So it's looking at company reports, broker research, news articles, earnings transcripts, and looking for whatever theme you've decided to look, look for, renewable energy, cybersecurity, robotics, whatever. It can scan through all of this data and identify companies that are most aligned to that theme by how much they're talking about this theme in all these textual data sources and also how much revenue they're actually generating from the theme. Now, we use that as a starting point, and then we work with our fundamental analysts, fundamental portfolio managers to validate that those companies actually make sense and often wanting to build you know, high conviction portfolios out that from there. So say the theme bot identifies 300 companies in the area of sustainable infrastructure. Well, then our active portfolio managers will select the highest conviction ideas within that, the ones they actually think are going to outperform, the ones that we can validate are actually aligned to the sustainable objective and so on. So there's a lot of different, different angles we can think about when, when building these funds. I love that. A theme bot. <laughs> That's so yeah, cool. Everyone needs a theme bot. Yeah. I know. <laughs> so what, what are the most common themes that you're looking at at the moment and, and how have they evolved over time, do you think? I would say that when we look across the landscape, we see themes kind of falling into three different categories. So the first is just disruptive technologies. I mentioned this before, but think about the biggest shift over the last few decades in terms of just look at the biggest companies in in the market right now. It has been technology and this huge wave of innovation that has come through there. I think that actually is going to remain. I mean, there's still a lot of growth potential. There's a lot of innovation going on there. Beyond that, and and actually the areas we've probably seen a bit more interest recently, fall into what I'd call maybe people and demographics. So tapping into some of the big demographic shifts that are reshaping the economy that, that we all live in, maybe tapping into some of the more social angles or healthcare angles. And then the third piece is more on environmental sustainability, whether that's climate change, whether that's biodiversity, whether that's natural resources and our use of natural capital and so on. And I think those are kind of the three buckets we've we've seen and, and probably will continue to, to see growth in those areas. Yeah, well, that kind of leads us on to what we were going to ask you next, which is how do you see those three areas evolving? Do you see one becoming bigger than the others or one perhaps getting a bit smaller or do you see it differently? We have definitely seen climate and energy transition being kind of the top area of focus. And I don't think that's going away. I mean, just look at some of the big shifts we've seen from a geopolitical and policymaker perspective with the Inflation Reduction Act, with the big shift in EU money going towards energy efficiency and and green energy. And I I think that's going to be the case. One of the other areas we've seen a lot is actually proliferation in a way, I suppose, of more niche themes. So a lot of very narrow, well-defined themes that clients can access, whether that's maybe a hydrogen, whether that's 
renewable energy, I suppose, really pretty narrowly defined and, and so on. And I think that's very interesting. And a lot of clients will maybe want to construct their own portfolios of those underlying themes. We've taken an approach of maybe making our thematic funds a bit broader. So rather than having a water theme, we're actually thinking about all natural capital and how can you think about investing across the spectrum of of not just water, but also food and agriculture and also materials and other inputs. We think that that potentially can lead to a better client outcome because it allows us as active managers to navigate within that. It allows our clients to perhaps withstand some of the volatility that comes through cycles. But I think there is a a role to play of both in, in the broader market. When you've got a broad fund like that, how do you decide how much to allocate to water, other resources, something else? Is it just an equal weight or is that, is that something you think about when you're building the portfolio and so therefore can evolve as time goes on? We usually think about allocating based on where the breadth of the opportunity set. So all of our thematic portfolios are built bottom up. We find individual stocks, individual companies that we like, and we allocate them in the portfolio. Often when we're building a, a larger theme like this, there are many underlying sub-themes. Some are going to be much broader. Think about maybe electrification, for example, compared to something that's a bit more narrow, maybe something like a recycling. And that naturally kind of plays out. The other angle that we do think about is the investment opportunity. So there are moments in time throughout the cycle that you want to be leaning into certain elements of the supply chain and not others, or you want to be leaning into larger cap, more established companies rather than earlier stage companies and vice versa. And that plays a role as, as well when we're building these, these portfolios. And do they tend to be single asset class? I think you mentioned at the outset, you guys tend to focus more on equity funds. But do you find that you can sort of invest across the capital structure when it comes to thinking thematically? Absolutely. So the biggest area of growth has been in listed equities. And and that's kind of where we've focused as well. However, if you think about fixed income, we're seeing a bit more and more there. Clearly, the growth in terms of green bonds pushed that along. But even, you know, you can think about building fixed income portfolios aligned to SDGs, for example, as well. And then when we look in the alternative space in the private markets, you could argue, actually, that many of them have been investing in, in quote unquote themes for a long time. You know, we have a large infrastructure fund that's very much focused on some of the big shifts and changes in the infrastructure space which in many cases are aligned with renewable energy or, or other big themes. And actually, I mean, private equity and private markets kind of align similarly to what we're seeing in the listed equity space as well. So you see a lot of thematic-esque funds there too. And in terms of investing in a theme, you know, you're speaking to end members or end clients about these. To what extent do they understand the risks that come with investing in a, in a theme? Because you could argue that one of the, the safety nets of investing in Acqui is that it's well diversified and therefore if things are doing well, there's maybe some things aren't doing as well. Whereas within a theme, you're almost kind of putting all your eggs in one basket. So to what extent do you think end members truly understand the risks that they're exposing themselves to? That is, I think, really critical in terms of how we communicate this message out, out to our clients and to end members. Because as I said, there's multiple ways to think about thematic investing. We have some thematic funds that are low tracking error, they're sector aligned, they're maybe tilting into lower carbon emitting companies, for example, but others are much more concentrated. And these types of thematic funds tend to be a bit more smaller cap, 
They tend to be a bit more growth oriented. They tend to have pretty large sector concentrations that look different from a broad market. And with that comes high levels of tracking error. Now, you hope that these themes that you're selecting and the companies you're investing in will outperform over a cycle, but there will absolutely be periods when they're going to underperform. And so you need to communicate that. And we need to help our clients and their end clients really think about how do you communicate that to the end investor? One of the potential benefits as well about, I think, sustainable investing in general, thematic investing can kind of fit in that, is that hopefully we're also seeing clients who feel a sense of connection perhaps to the to the portfolios that they're investing in. And, and maybe they will withstand some of the volatility that naturally comes with any investable asset with markets because they feel that, that sort of connection. So perhaps there's a way to help that in terms of how we think about diversification, staying invested, those sorts of key elements of, of investing principles. One thing we've talked about quite a lot on other episodes so far is ESG reporting, everyone's favorite topic. I mean, how easy is it to extract data when you're investing thematically? Because I mean, I think it sounds as though across asset management from what we've heard so far, it's, it's difficult, but it's getting a bit easier. Is, is that a similar kind of story? Yes, it is difficult. The data quality out there is just not great mm. yet. It will improve. I mean, companies themselves are reporting more. There are more data vendors and data providers that are aggregating this data more kind of consistency across the industry about what to look at. What have we done about this now? So as of today, we produce kind of a quarterly sustainability report that shows traditional metrics that our clients would be familiar with, like an ESG score or ES&G score, other broader sustainability metrics that do have reasonable levels of data quality, carbon emissions, water use, gender diversity, maybe waste, those sorts of metrics. We also do show alignment to UN sustainable development goals. As I say, this maybe isn't a perfect measure, but it's at least a framework that clients can understand that gives consistency across the industry. And then we also produce an annual report that provides a bit more of the underlying company examples. Because when when we speak to individual companies, there's a great data points that you can pull out. Individual companies we're speaking to will say, through my energy efficient heating and ventilation products, we've saved our customers 50 million tons of greenhouse gases over the last three years. That's huge. But until we've got that data for every company, it's hard to aggregate. And maybe it's a bit better to tell individual stories of the impact that these companies are having through a different angle that that brings that to life. And as we get more and more data, better reporting, we can aggregate that up as well. That makes sense. By the way, how many companies would you typically have in a thematic fund? I mean, is, is there a number that's average or does it vary a lot? We have about 50 to 100. So some of our more high conviction portfolios are kind of more in that 50, 60, maybe 70 stock range. We don't tend to go a lot lower than that because then it just becomes a bit more of an idiosyncratic stock story. And then some of our broader, more diversified themes can have you know closer to 100 or, or even look much more benchmark-like. Okay, that makes sense. We haven't talked about DC yet, have we? No, and I suppose what we're seeing is that the interest in thematic funds is most likely going to be at the Mm self-select side of things. And maybe at some point you might see it starting to creep into the default fund itself. When you're speaking to sort of end clients, do you get a sense as to how they see thematic investing? Is it let's allow the members to choose this if they want? Or are there any sort of bigger clients who are thinking about making an allocation within the main fund, for example? 
We have seen both, actually. So some of our strategies are offered in the self-select range, I think is probably the most natural place for some of these strategies, particularly the higher conviction one. And as I say, it's often related to what the members are potentially interested in. We do have other clients that have incorporated some element of thematic investing in the default. One of the examples is actually on more of a carbon transition or low carbon portfolio where it's lower tracking error, it's cost effective, it's creating a meaningful meaningful reduction in the plan's overall carbon footprint, helping them tell the story of we're aligned to net zero and playing a key building block in their overall portfolio anyway. I mean, they'd probably be using traditional passive equities or something in that anyway. So might as well move a bit more towards something that's aligned with maybe their plan's objective of net zero. So I think there are different ways. And, and we are actually starting to see a bit more interest from, from the DC space in, in this, this area. Just in terms of that example you gave there, in terms of, say, reducing the carbon emissions, is that just by screening out the worst emitters? Or how do you guys kind of construct a sort of low carbon equity portfolio? We think about it in terms of evaluating individual companies within their sector. So we want to keep this low tracking error, we keep sectors aligned. And then within that, we kind of say, what are the things that individual companies can do to prepare themselves from the carbon transition? The first and most important thing they can do is manage their emissions. So we look at what are called scope one, two, and three greenhouse gas emissions, as well as a number of other metrics there. Beyond that, they can also think about their broader use of resources. So how much water are they using? How much waste are they producing? And so on. And they can also think about the risks of climate change. So how can we evaluate, for example, the physical risks that companies might be taking on as we move forward and see see climate change further impacting the planet, the economy, and so on? And then we effectively score the companies in, in whatever starting index we're looking at and lean into those that are moving in the right direction, lean away from those that aren't, leading to a pretty meaningful reduction in carbon intensity at the portfolio level, but still kind of giving you that core risk managed exposure to the market. I've got one final question. I think it's going back to the point about thematic data. So if you've got these thematic funds, you know, clients are used to, well, I suppose they're getting used to carbon emissions data, wacky, these types of things. When you're constructing a sort of water fund, I'm going to use that as a, a fairly crude example, you know, what sort of data points are you looking at? Because with the theme itself, what are you trying to invest in? Is it companies that improve their usage of water? So how do you actually then measure that? And how can you say that the fund is being successful at making companies more efficient in the water they use? Crude example, you sure. might have a better example. No, of, no, of no the that's question, right. But. We generally tend to look at revenue. So, you know, because there's not a perfect data source out there, we usually want to make sure that enough of a company's revenue is aligned to this theme. So is at least... 20%, say, of the company's revenue aligned to water purification, water recycling, wastewater treatment, and so on. But then beyond that, I mean, that's one simplistic measure is revenue. But you also want to make sure that they're not having any negative consequences in the rest of their business. They're not involved in a different area of their business might be involved in something that's doing detriment to the theme that you're, you're trying to achieve. So that's generally the main metric we look at. We often get clients who tend to think that in order to invest in a thematic portfolio, you only want pure play companies. You want companies who 100% of their business or very close is aligned to this specific theme. And there are areas where you can do that. I mean, bringing up renewable energy, for example, 
actually water itself. There are a lot of pure play water companies, but there are others where you want to have a broader broader set of companies. So one example that's, I think, relatively tangible is cloud computing. So if you build a cloud computing fund, you're probably going to want a pure play company like a Dropbox, for example, but you're probably also going to want a large conglomerate like an Amazon. They're the biggest provider of cloud computing, even if it's only one subset of their business. And the same kind of applies to everything that we're looking at, where we want to be mindful of the fact that you want a mix of pure play disruptive companies, but also bigger companies that, that have a big impact. Oh, that's so interesting. Well, I feel like I've learned a lot. Thank you so much, Katie. It's been great speaking to you. Great. Thanks so much for the time. Great to connect with both of you as well. Thanks so much. You've been listening to Changing World New Opportunities, brought to you by the DC Investment Forum. Head over to dcif.co.uk, where you can read all the research the DCIF publishes, follow the DCIF on Twitter and LinkedIn, and subscribe to this show on your favourite podcasting platform. Thanks, and we'll see you next time on Changing World New Opportunities.